Amen. Thank you again for joining us tonight. And um, this evening we're going to be continuing through our series on biblical interpretation. Just got a couple left. Um, um, We'll discuss some of the same themes a little bit as we have before, but maybe from a slightly different angle this evening. But tonight we're going to be talking about understanding the meaning of a text, understanding the meaning. I think you'll find this a little bit interesting. Uh, but as we begin, I just want to share uh, kind of an interesting little tidbit about me and a friend of mine's relationship. He's a guy that I met at Georgia Tech, and we became friends really my last semester there. So we weren't friends for a, a very long time at all, really, before graduated and really kind of moved away from each other. And yet we've, um, and yet he's still remained one of my closest friends, surprisingly. And uh, we've we've kept in touch pretty well, um, but but uh, I don't, he'd kill me if I if he knew I was telling y'all this. But I mean, but he's like he's like a high class dude, you know. He's like very proper, very like I mean, but so humble, so humble, but just very proper. Like you know, like when I'm around him, I feel like I should be wearing like coat and tie kind of thing. Like just very like. Uh, professional guy, great, great guy, really loves the Lord. Uh, but one of the things about him, about our relationship early on, our friendship early on, is I noticed he had this thing that he often do when we would uh, have a conversation. And I would say something, and uh, and he would say, "What do you mean by that?" And and he would say that over and over, and I would find myself often like explaining like precisely what I meant by like a word or phrase or, or sentence or phrase that I would say, and and I quickly discover I quickly decided um, that I needed to be very careful with my words when I was around him because he was very he's very precise with his language, not not in like a rude way, but he really wants to understand what I'm trying to say, and interestingly. I actually found that very helpful in our relationship because what it did is it made me be a lot more careful with my words. When I was around, when I was around him, it made me very conscious of being slow to speak, like the Bible says, and saying only what I meant and nothing more and nothing less. And so uh, I learned a lot about, about meaning from my friend. And that's what I want to talk about tonight, is understanding the meaning of a text. Just like my friend was trying to understand the meaning of what I was trying to say, uh, we'd want to try to understand the meaning of the Bible. And again, these are uh, uh, thoughts taken from Rob Plummer's book, 40 Questions on Interpreting the Bible. So we're going to look at a, a few different questions tonight. The first question is, who determines the meaning of the text? Who determines the meaning of the text? This, you know... It may seem like common sense to us, but the answer to this question um, is not the same for everybody. And there's many approaches that we could talk about, but I'm just going to talk about two. But a dominant approach today when reading a text is that the reader determines meaning. So So just think about that. Lots of times today when we're reading something... The question that people are asking is not what is this, the other person, the author trying to say. The question people are asking is what does this mean for me? What does this mean for me? 
Okay? In other words, the meaning of something derives not from the author, but from the reader. An example of this, of course, is uh, the, 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 the philosophy that some judges have uh, in, in, in constitutional interpretation, where they interpret the Constitution as a, quote-unquote, living document. So what does that mean? It means that when you have that interpretation technique... When you approach the Constitution as a judge, then you are not asking what did the original authors intend when they wrote these words. You are asking what does it mean for us today in in the sense that you are now reading into it thoughts and ideas that the original authors of the document would have never imagined their words to mean. Does that make sense? And we've seen that a lot in Supreme Court decisions over the past couple decades where they create rights out of out of thin air that were that were nowhere in view in the constitution but that that's a that's a consequence uh, if you will of of the worldview in which we're saturated where it's where the meaning is derived in our own heads from the reader and not from the uh, author and there's been lots of kinds of reader created meanings over the past 150 years that have been offered and you know, sometimes these things can feel like a, a pie in the sky, kind of like, you know, that happens in colleges and universities, and it, and it does, but the thing is, is it hasn't stayed there. It's now, it's now spread into all of our culture, and frankly, I think that's part of the reason why we're in the mess we're in today. Just to give an example um, of different types of readings people have, some people, so uh, an, an example of a reading would be like a, Mar- a Marxist reading. Uh, you know, uh, Karl Marx, the uh, developer of communism, uh, he, he proposed this narrative in which everything takes place in a class war struggle, okay? Where everything, everything, everything that takes place is based off the economics of a privileged class versus an oppressed class. Okay, And when you begin viewing reality through that lens, then you view every action of everyone else as a power play. This, this is our culture today, where, you're, where uh, everyone is suspicious of everyone else, and everyone that every, everything that everyone else says is just a power play jockeying for position. That's, that's a worldview. It's a, Mar- it's a Marxist worldview. Every act of, a, of, a, of another person is an act of aggression or oppression uh, by certain powers. There's other readings, like a feminist reading. There, there are those who would read the Bible, for example, in, in a feminist way and, and interpret it in that way. There, there's homosexual readings of the Bible, for example. There, there are people who would read the Bible and say and read into it ideas like, I, I have heard uh, of, of people like saying that David and Jonathan were like romantically involved and things like that. You approach, you approach the text that you're reading with an agenda, as it were, because you determine the meaning. And this, appro- this whole approach has been undergirded by our postmodern pluralistic society, which says things like, there's no such thing as truth. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. Who are you to say that it means this? When I say it means this, etc. And so the document, so when we read things through this worldview, everything becomes about us. It's no longer about objective meaning out there. It's only about what it means for me and how I can use it for my 
purposes. And this this happens in the this happens in the church too. The, these unusual readings that places the emphasis on us rather than on what the text is actually trying to say. Let me give you an example. There's a children's Bible with the story of Joseph in it. Okay, and the, here's the application of the Bible. For the kid, you know, it has little application parts for the kids. You read it to your kids. This is the application parts from the story of Joseph. Has anyone ever given you something like a new coat or sweater? How did it make you feel? That has nothing to do with the story of Joseph. It's taking a passage that that has everything to do with what we talked about last week, but has nothing to do about with about with you and how you feel when you get a new coat or sweater. And so it, that, is, that, that, that is drawing, that reading, if you will, is drawing on our self-esteem culture and reading Joseph's story in that light when that's not its meaning at all. Let's give another example. Um, uh, uh, in, the, in the book, Dr. Plummer tells this story uh, from a, a new convert. So a, a person was newly converted... Uh, but but they were attending a more liberal church, and the pastor was speaking that morning on the parable, Jesus' parable of the of the wheat and, and the weeds, or the wheat and the tares. And um, and the pastor's point of that of the story of the parable of the wheat and the tares is that in our lives we need to tend the wheat and remove the weeds. So you know you live in your life, you got wheat, you got. Wheat and you got weeds in your life. The weeds are things you need to get out. The wheat's the good stuff. So you. <laughs> but here's the problem with that explanation of the text. Jesus explains what that parable means. The wheat are God's people, and the tares are not. And the tares will be uprooted and thrown into the fire. So do you see what the pastor was doing? He was reading his own meaning. Into Jesus' parable with total disregard for Jesus' own explanation of the parable. And so it, it sounds strange, but it's, it's prevalent today. These are where we read it in view of our own, and we're the authors of the meaning of a text that we read. It sounds strange, but it's, it's widespread. I want to suggest to you. That biblically speaking, and, and frankly, I just think it's common sense. And that is when we read a text, when we read a text, the author determines the meaning. The author determines the meaning. It sounds common sense, but you, you just you have to say it. When my when my friend in our in our conversations and he said, Chad, what do you what do you mean by that? He th- what he's asking is You've said something, and it's not clear, you know, it may, it may be ambiguous, or I'm just, I'm not fully understanding what you're saying, so I'm asking you, I want to know what you mean by what you're saying. In other words, if I don't ask you to clarify, then in my mind, I'm left with fogginess, or even worse, I could just presume that you mean something else, and I could be totally wrong with what you meant, right? Miscommunication happens all the time, you know? Can I get a witness, spouses? <laughs> okay. All right. Man says one thing, the woman hears something else. Woman says one thing, the man hears something else. Happens all the time, right? So a good question to ask is, what do you mean, 
right? And, the, and, but, and even when we do that, we intuitively know that we're, what we're getting at is their meaning, what they intended to say. Because intuitively, no, that's what, that's what we know. That's what meaning is. In other words, the meaning of something is objective. It's not something that I can create in my mind, but it stands outside of me, and I have to discover it, right? And when someone says something, and they mean, they, they're trying to communicate something to me, that meaning lies in them, in, in the actor, in the speaker, in the author. I can't just create it out of my own mind. It's not subjective. It is objective it is outside of me and the same is true when we're reading a text when i'm reading a book i'm not just i'm not trying to say what does this mean for me i want to know the argument that the author is trying to make and and evaluate it and so the, it should, the same should be true when we read the bible now of course when we read the bible it's we don't have the luxury for example of going to the apostle paul and saying hey what'd you mean by that that'd be real nice but we can't but still, even as we're wrestling with the things that we've been talking about, the, these tools that we have for properly interpreting the Bible, as we apply them to the Bible, what we are still seeking is not what we want it to say, but we're still, trying, we're still seeking what has God said. What did, what did Jesus mean? What did Paul mean? What did Peter mean? We're, when, we're in, when we read the Bible, that's the way we must approach it. It's saying, what, do, what did they mean? And so, and so that, that's the heart of understanding uh, the meaning of the text, is that the author determines the meaning. The second question we want to look at is this. Uh, can a text have more than one meaning? Uh, well, we, we've talked about this uh, to some degree already, but as we've said before, well, the answer is it depends. <laughs> it depends because, as we know, the author is, has both human and divine. Uh, the book Bible has both human and divine uh, authorship, and, and we'll just give another example of this uh, of, a, of a text uh, Isaiah seven fourteen. Uh, in Isaiah seven fourteen. Uh, uh, Isaiah writes, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So just think about that for a second. It's a prophecy. Isaiah is giving this prophecy and, uh, and he's prophesying about a child that will be born. Now, if you read the passage, um, you'll see that uh, Isaiah is referencing something uh, that is, is he's, he's, he's referencing an event in his day. All right? It's pretty clear if you read the context in Isaiah 7 there. He's referencing an event that will take place in his day. But as we all know, in the book of Matthew, in, in Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 to be exact, Matthew quotes that same verse. And says that it talks about Jesus, right? So as we've said before, we could say that Matthew was wrong or that he was sloppy. Or we could understand something else. And, and the key to this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and following. This is what Peter says. It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 
It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. In other words, what, what does this mean? It means that Peter, what Peter is saying is that the Old Testament authors, and especially the prophets, understood that their, what they were writing had fuller and deeper meaning and fulfillment in the future. They understood that. They, they were searching for it. They, they inquired about it. It was not made clear to them, but they did know. In other words, in terms of the authors of the text, Isaiah, when he wrote this passage, it was, he, it was talking about a child that was going to be born in his day. But at the same time, Isaiah knew that what he was speaking, somehow he didn't know exactly, but it went beyond himself. And he knew that. It was, and it was part of his intention as the Lord's uh, prophet. And so, can a text have more than one meaning? Yeah, it depends. But yes, it, it can. And, and we've, we talked about that before in, in typological interpretation. Okay. So next question is this. What is the role of the Holy Spirit in determining meaning? So again, as we talked about last time, ultimately, <laughs> it's the Holy Spirit that makes clear to us the meaning of uh, the passage. Because we've already shown that the Bible is not just a human book, but it's also a divine book. The, the, uh, the authors understood that the Bible was, even though it was written down by humans, it was being inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, it, this, it, it actually, this actually is an important question because some people have argued like this. Some people have said... Well, uh, the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit. You know, we have the Holy Spirit. So we should be able to know exactly what every text means every time. Right? Every believer should arrive at the same conclusion every time. Right? That does not happen, folks. It does not happen. And so we have to ask, what is the Holy Spirit's role in interpretation? And some people, by the way, have argued that we can not just, we don't just have this Bible, but we can receive new and special revelation from God or new and special meanings of passages that have never been understood that way before in the entirety of church history. But that, that, that's just, <laughs> that's dangerous, uh, that's how most cults start. The term that's associated with the Holy Spirit's role in determining the meaning of the Bible is the word illumination. What we need from God is illumination. And it's a, it's a carefully chosen word, and it's a good word, because what does illumination mean? It means it shines light on something, right? When you can't see something that's there... And then someone shines light on it, then you can see what was there, right? It's the same as true in the text. We're not looking for things outside the text. We're not, we don't want some special light to see what was never there before. What we want, what we need is spiritual light from God to help us see what has been there the whole time, but we just haven't been able to see it. Spiritual illumination. 
And the Bible is clear uh, that we need this light. In 1 Corinthians 2.14 it says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The theological term for this is called the noetic effects of sin. In other words, sin affects how we know. You see it? Sin affects our brains, our minds. We're holistic beings, uh, mind, body, and soul. And, and sin affects the way we think, the way we uh, see, the way we understand things. And so what we need uh, is spiritual light. So it seems to me that the, the, the doctrine of illumination tells us that God, nowhere, God, God doesn't promise us to give some kind of, of like supernatural sign that we have achieved the uh, correct interpretation of every single passage. Rather, what spiritual illumination is, is that God by supernaturally frees our minds from the, from the uh, effects that sin has wreaked on our minds, enabling us to see what is really there. In, in other words, God has given us minds. He, he's made us rational beings. He's made us like him. He's given us minds that can think, that can reason, that can evaluate, right? And so people whose minds are renewed by the Spirit are able to come to this book and say, I want to know what God says. And they're able to read it and using the spiritually illumined reasoning faculties that are now uh, released from the chains of sin, we can come to good and faithful and accurate conclusions from the Bible, even though it, it may not be, we may not be precisely clear on every single uh, text. And so that's what spiritual illumination is. You know, sometimes we just we want to we want to pawn off on God the hard work that God's asking us to do. You know, we want to say we want God to show us the meaning of a hard passage without us having to think about it. That's just God's not going to do it. It's not how it works. He's given us a mind, and He has given us uh, and given us hearts that want to believe and obey God, and that allows us to approach the text in a way that an unbeliever couldn't. An unbeliever doesn't want to believe God. An unbeliever doesn't want to obey God. And so when they come to the text, they, there are things that they can't see because they don't want to see. But, but since God has illumined our hearts by the Holy Spirit, as we seek with the purity of heart to say, God, I believe and obey what you show me, we are then in, enabled and illumined and able to use our minds to discern the meaning of the passage. And where we disagree on, on secondary matters, the Spirit enables us to deal humbly and charitably with each other. Okay. So the, so the next question is this. What is the overarching message of the Bible? What is the overarching message of the Bible? Last time we talked about how uh, the Bible is about Jesus, and if 
we're not looking for Jesus and, 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 and seeing how everything is one big story that's pointing to Christ, then we're not seeing it correctly. Well, with this in mind, what are some ways or paradigms that we can use to help us to, to understand the unfolding story of the Bible? There's a few ways I want to talk about uh, tonight. The first is this, is uh, promise and fulfillment. So again, this, these are just ways to understand that the Bible is all about Jesus, and these are some frameworks that we can use to think about how to understand the unfolding story of the Bible. And the first is promise and fulfillment. That is, that the Old Testament, by and large, is God making promises, and the New Testament is God keeping his promises. That's a good way to think about it. That's a helpful way to think about it. God is making promises, and God is keeping promises. God is, uh, as we talked about on Sunday mornings, he's passing on the promise to to Noah, and then to Abraham, then to Abraham's family, then to David, then on to Jesus Christ. Promise made, promise kept. Jesus in Matthew 5, 17 said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so this framework can help us to remember that the whole Bible is about Jesus. There's another framework um, that uh, that you, a way way to look at it, and it's this number two: kingdom anticipated, kingdom inaugurated, kingdom consummated. I'm going to explain what that means: kingdom anticipated, kingdom inaugurated, and kingdom consummated. So this is another way to look at the unfolding biblical storyline. So what what, the, what many theologians consider the overarching theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God, okay? God is king. He made the earth. He's king over it. He, gave, he, sh- he shared his authority. Remember we talked about he shared his authority with Adam and Eve, saying what? Have dominion over the earth, of this, over the, over the earth and the birds of the, of the air and the fish of the sea, right? But the theme is that God is king. And in Israel, God tells the people Israel and the nation of Israel, he tells them what? God is king. And then over and over in the New Testament, what do they say about Jesus? Jesus is Lord, right? And in the very end of the Bible, we have the new heavens and the new earth where, where what happens? Where God comes down to earth, sitting on the throne. He's the king, right? So the kingdom of God is perhaps the theme of the Bible, and, and, it's, and it's all tied together in the person of Jesus. And so one way to look at the Bible is, is this, kingdom anticipated, kingdom inaugurated, kingdom consummated. The kingdom of God was anticipated in Israel, right? We're going to be talking about this. God chose Israel, right? And he was going to give them what? A land to dwell in, the promised land. Where And who would rule in that land? God. God would rule in that land, and they would be his people, and he would be their God in the land that he was giving them, and God would be their king. That's why I remember when they asked Samuel for a king, God's, God told them, they're, they're asking for a king because they're rejecting me as their king, remember? And so that kingdom in, the, in Israel, it was anticipated. And then when Jesus came, remember what, remember what Jesus said? He said, 
he, we, we would say Jesus inaugurated the kingdom. What, is that, what does it mean to inaugurate? He means he kicked it off. He started it. He initiated it, but it's not complete yet, right? Remember what Jesus said about the kingdom? It's very mysterious. He said, the kingdom is like a mustard seed. And what does it do? It grows till it fills the earth. Remember, he said the kingdom of God is like what? It's like a little bit of leaven hidden in some flour until it what? Grows and and fills all the flour. Jesus came. Remember, the very first recorded words of Jesus is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I have come to bring God's kingdom back. It's kingdom inaugurated, but it's not kingdom consummated because it's not in its fullness yet. In other words, we who believe in Jesus are doing what? We are bowing our knee to him. We are becoming citizens of his kingdom. Right? And wherever Jesus is believed and loved and obeyed, there is the kingdom of God. But God's goal, the end goal, is God's is Christ's kingdom to be coterminous with the world. And so Jesus inaugurated the kingdom, but he hasn't consummated it. But the Bible says that there will be a day when Jesus comes and consummates his kingdom, where Jesus said, or where Paul said, Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What Jesus started, he's going to finish, and he will bring his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's what he taught us to pray for, right? So that's another way to look at the Bible. Kingdom anticipated, kingdom inaugurated, kingdom consummated. Uh, a third and final way or way to look at the Bible that helps us keep Jesus at the center is the Old Covenant, New Covenant framework. And we've talked about this too. Uh, the the uh, God gave the Israelites what we call the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law. And he told them that this is how you are going to act and behave as my people In the land of Israel. And it was the old covenant. And as we said in the previous one, that was the kingdom anticipated, but not the kingdom inaugurated or consummated. So in the old covenant, it was, it was, uh, we, we talked about when we went through Galatians that the old covenant was temporary. The Mosaic law was temporary. It was setting up. It was getting things ready. It was setting the stage for the coming of Christ. The old covenant was right. It was good at that time, but it, It showed people God's holiness and his character, but it gave them no power to change. Right? It gave them all these rules about how holy God is, but it gave them no power to obey. That's why Jeremiah and Ezekiel, when they prophesy about the new covenant, what do they say about the new covenant? That God will take out a heart of stone And give us a heart of flesh. In other words, in the new covenant, it is not just these external rules outside of us that we can't obey. 
It's God writing his law on our hearts so that we obey not from outside compulsion, but from internal desire to please God. And so that's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. When Jesus died, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, he told his disciples, this is the new covenant in my blood. And so, and so these are, hopefully these are helpful and frameworks for you as we think about uh, the Bible. And these, these frameworks can help us to uh, make sense of, of different passages. One just came to mind, so maybe I'll share it real quick. Real quick. Um, what, about, what about the passage that boggles Baptists because Jesus makes wine at a wedding? Right? What's the deal with that? Why, why, share, why would John share that story? What does, what does making wine at a wedding have to do with anything? Well, these frameworks can do what? They can help us understand that. How? Because what, what does John, when he tells us about when Jesus did this, what was, what was the jars of water? What were they? You remember? They were water for purification rituals. That's what, what the jars were for. When Jesus takes the water and tells them to fill up those jars and he makes it into wine, what's Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm taking your old and I'm making something new. Remember when Jesus told the parable? He says, you can't put new wine in what? Old wine skins. What do you got to do? You got to get a new wine skin. You see? These things make sense. It makes sense in these frameworks. Old covenant, new covenant, promise fulfillment. These things all make sense when we see what Jesus is doing, and that is he came to bring something new. And it helps us to make sense of passages like that. That otherwise we say, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Okay, so um, the overarching message of the Bible is this about Jesus. Okay, the next question is this. And we've talked about this um, already as well. Do all the commands of the Bible apply today? Do all the commands of the Bible apply today? We talked about before, the answer is uh, no. In Mark chapter 7, verse 18 and 19, it says, uh, Jesus said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, he declared all foods clean. You got to understand, for a Jew, remember when Peter received the vision of the sheet descending from heaven, and he three times he told God, no, I will not eat that. Nothing unclean has ever entered my mouth. That's how the Jews took, they still today, the serious Jews, they still take it very seriously. Jesus undoing this was world-shattering for a Jew. World-shattering for a Jew. And yet there it is right there. Jesus declared all foods clean. He was doing away with the old. In the the book of Hebrews chapter 7, the author of Hebrews says this. He's he's talking about the the priesthood, the order of the Levitical priesthood. And and, And about how Jesus Christ basically he did away with the Levitical priesthood because he's a... Uh, 
the priest in the order of Melchizedek, and maybe I'll preach to Hebrews one day and explain that. But in Hebrews 7, it says, For on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside. That's what he's saying. On the one hand, the for- a former commandment is what? Set aside because why? Because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus has done away with the old because it wasn't, it, it, it couldn't make you perfect. But on the other hand, God has given us a new hope in Jesus Christ. And so he's done away with the old to bring the, the new. So this begs the question then, what do we do? What do we do then with the laws that we keep from the Old Testament? And... and I don't want to get too complex here because there's lots of different views on this. But people debate about how we relate to the Old Testament law. You know, for example, there are many things of the Old Testament law that we would say we keep, right? Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't murder. Don't lie. Don't covet. Well, those were part of the Old Covenant. Okay? How are we to understand those things? Well, I think the answer is, is here uh, in Paul. Galatians 5.14. Paul says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Romans 13, Paul says this, For the commandments, you shall not commit adulteries, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong for a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. It seems to me what Paul is saying is that the old covenant is gone, but we should expect that the old covenant, in many cases, did accurately show us what it meant to love other people. And so we should expect that there would be a large amount of carryover from the old and the new covenant, not because we're bound to the old covenant, but because in many ways the Old Covenant does reliably show us what it means to love each other and to love our neighbor. You don't love when you commit adultery. You don't love when you commit murder. You don't love when you steal, when you lie, when you covet. And so the, our New Testament ethic is not the Old Covenant. It's the law of love wrought by the Spirit. Not just love whatever I think love is. It's love informed by a knowledge of God's righteousness. So it's not a vague, ambiguous, oh, we just love each other, you know, coexist, sticker on your bumper. Okay? That's not, it's not that kind of love. It's not just any love you make up, but it's God-centered love. It's, it's love for reality that there is one God who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. And when you love in view of Him in reality, you'll love in a specific way. And that is the law to which we are bound, the law of love. And so in many ways, if you think about it, the Christian ethic is deeper than the, than the old covenant ethic, right? Because remember what Jesus said? He said, you have heard it said, you should not commit adultery, but I say to you. What do you say, Jesus? If you lust after a woman in your heart, you have committed adultery. The, the, the new covenant ethic in some ways is actually more stringent 
than the old covenant ethic because Jesus says God's not just interested in your external behavior, but the condition of your heart. So even though in some sense it may seem that since we're not, we're not bound by the old covenant, then we're so much more freer than the Jews were. But in another sense, we're bound even more to hearts of love and faith and obedience to God. Paul says anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. James says, uh, it just slipped my mind. Help me out, somebody. What does James say? James says, he who knows what is right to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. You see? That's a different ethic. It's, it's stronger than the old covenant ethic. Okay. So, are we bound by the old, do all the commands of the Bible play, apply today? Uh, no, not, not exactly, not just as we've explained. And the last question we're going to talk about um, tonight is uh, this. Where is it? Okay, the question is this. Why do people disagree on what the Bible says? Why do people disagree on what the Bible says? So this is a question that sometimes people will raise, and they'll say, you know, you know, they just presume, like we said before, that all Christians should have the, we should have the same interpretation. And, they, and they'll, say, they'll say, you know, Mormons, for example, Mormons will tell you, well, you're, you're wrong because look at all your different denominations and we have one church. Well, your church is a domination. Uh, anyways. That, <laughs> but they'll say, look at all the schisms that you have. Look at all the differences that you have. It must not be, it must not be right. But when people say, why do, you know, when people ask, you know, why do people disagree on what the Bible means? There's just a couple things we have to think about. Um, first of all, we should have reasonable expectations about who will and won't agree on what the Bible means. You know, of course, everyone's not going to agree on what the Bible means. A born-again believer in Jesus Christ is not going to believe and should not be expected to believe the same thing an unbeliever believes about the Bible. Because you, you fundamentally have a different way of looking at it. So it'd be, it'd be kind of foolish to say, well, why does everyone agree, disagree on the Bible? Well, there, there's a reason. You, you're fundamentally looking at it a different way. So we shouldn't be expected in those regards to, to interpret it the same way. Now, now, among genuine believers, I would say that the disagreement is often overstated. In other words, even among believers, because of sin... We tend to focus on our differences more than our sameness, and that's to our own detriment. But there's a lot more agreement than there is uh, disagreement. The example uh, Dr. Plummer gives in his book is, is on divorce. For example, we would all believers would agree that divorce is bad. God does not like divorce. God forgives repentant, divorced persons. We would disagree uh, among Christians about valid reasons for divorce, whether one, sh- whether one should remarry or whether a divorcee can be a pastoral elder. But, and so it might be, you, we might look at those disagreements and, and make a big deal about those disagreements. But if you think about the, what we do agree on, that's the fundamental part. That's the fundamental point. The other things are more tertiary and secondary applicational matters. Not that they're not important. But the thing is, is we all, dis- all, 
would agree on the most fundamental and important parts of it. And that's, that's, that's generally true across the board where there's some disagreement. Another reason all uh, uh, people, uh, all believers don't always agree in the Bible is that the fact of the matter is, is that just some parts of the Bible are, um, are harder to in- interpret than, than others. And so we don't have enough, even, even with our uh, minds illumined by the Spirit, we just don't have access to enough information uh, to be able to discern explicitly what, what a text means. Because when Paul wrote a letter, for example, to a church, he was writing to specific people in a specific place in a specific time, and he would write things that he, would, he knew that they would know what he meant, but 2,000 years later, we just don't know. And that's just part, that's just part, of, part of it. Another thing to think about, too, is that the Bible even anticipates that there will be things the believers will disagree on. Think about that. Romans 14, verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He's talking about, he's talking about for example, the Jews, if you're a Jewish Christian, you want to keep the Sabbath. And when you keep the Sabbath, you're not keeping, as a Jewish Christian, you're keeping the Sabbath in honor of the Lord, right? In honor of Jesus Christ as a Jewish Christian. But a Gentile who is a Christian, you know, he, he, wasn't, necessarily, he wasn't keeping Saturday as the Sabbath as a Jewish would, as a Jewish Christian might still want to, right? Well, what Paul is saying here is, well, if you're a Jewish Christian and you want to keep a Sabbath on the Saturday and you honor the Lord in it, good for you. You don't want to? Good for you, right? In other words, Paul is saying there are some things, there are some things that even as Christians we can disagree on, and it's it's just going to be okay. It's just going to be okay, and the Bible anticipates that. And so, and so, you know, we we shouldn't we sh- we shouldn't take it uh, as 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 such a serious uh, question of saying, well, all, you know, shouldn't all people believe the same? It's just not true. In conclusion, the point is this, is that despite all that we're talking about, um, the the things that are core and central to Christianity are crystal clear. They're crystal clear. And, they're, they're, and over the, the history of the church, there's no debate on them. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And, and so our desire as we come to the Bible to understand the meaning of a text, we're seeking to, to believe, to trust, to obey, knowing that as we seek the meaning of the Bible with minds and hearts illumined by the Holy Spirit, uh, and, as we, and as we think carefully about things, God will reveal and he will... <laughs> Show us. He will shine light for us on what is there. And we will know him uh, more and more deeply. And, and that's the point. That's the goal. Let's pray together.